Today is January 11th, 2021. Happy New Year's, everyone. Welcome to our first episode of 2021. We are full of hope and optimism for this new year, even though this year is looking just the same so far. Oh, I, I got a treat the Navy specialty over here. I got a little clap, a little morning drip. Gonna, gonna treat it with a little ceftriaxone and, and a Z-Pack, you know, for, for the pharyngitis. Wait, what are you doing? You're not still with the Marines. Didn't you read the update, dude? Ah, oh, Crimey, has there been an update? Do we have super gonorrhea? <sighs> yeah, so on December 18th, 2020, the CDC recommended a new treatment of uncomplicated urogenital, rectal, or pharyngeal gonorrhea with a single IM dose of 500 milligrams of ceftriaxone. Listen to this. It's now 500 milligrams instead of 250. For patients who weigh more than 150 kilograms, 300 pounds, you must double the single IM dose to one gram. If chlamydial infection hasn't been excluded, doxycycline 100 milligrams orally twice a day for seven days is recommended instead of the easy peasy single dose of azithro. All right, got that. So big boy gets a, a gram. But wait, hold up. Azithromycin, uh, that's still just the one gram PO dosing for the pregnant patients, right? Right. That's correct. Good. He's not pregnant. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> in patients with a, a cephalosporin uh, allergy, though, I got to go with a suggestion of 240 IM of genomycin plus a single two gram dosing of azithromycin. Fair enough. So now um, let's talk about expedited partner therapy, EPT, that is, for gonorrhea when permitted by state law. So the partner may be treated with a single 800 milligram dose of cefixime. I think that's how you say it. I don't use that one that often. So 800 milligrams of cefixime and add oral doxycycline 100 milligrams twice daily for seven days if chlamydia infection has not been excluded. So a little bit more complicated than our previous reg regimen. Uh, I'm gonna get a little concerned about compliance, but okay. Oh, test to cure isn't needed if the patient's got uncomplicated PP or butt gonorrhea, uh, that they're treated with any of these recommended or alternative regimens. So, hey, we're not totally still with the Marines because a test of cure is re recommended for pharyngeal gonorrhea seven to 14 days after initial treatment. Well, that's test of cure, that's semantics. All these patients get a, a repeat testing about three months after treatment just to make sure, because you keep going down the same watering hole, you're going to keep getting re-exposed. And if you can't get them in in three months, a year is okay. So, in summary, treat urogenital, rectal, and pharyngeal gonorrhea with a single IM dose of 500 milligrams of ceftriaxone plus doxycycline 100 milligrams BID for seven days. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. Hello, listeners. Uh, it's my honor today to welcome Dr. Tamela. She's the Chief of Women's Health of Clinica Sierra Vista, and she's here with us. Uh, to discuss a very interesting topic. And uh, so, Dr. Tamela, welcome, and thank you for accepting um, our invitation to come to the podcast. 
Sure, thank you for uh, inviting me to be with you today. Um, as he mentioned, I'm a Chief of Women's Health at Clinica Sierra Vista, and I'm a practicing OBGYN physician. Oh, great. And um, so a few weeks ago, you showed us this table uh, about hormonal contraception in women with hypertension, and I thought that was very interesting. So, and, uh, and that's why I invited you to come in and talk about that. And, you know, when we have uh, our medical students rotating with us, I have a, a little game that I play with them. It's a, it's a little Jeopardy. And I ask them a, a, sing, a simple question. I, I ask them, what measurement is essential before starting combined hormonal contraceptives? And they are, the answer to that question is uh, blood pressure. So, and, and that's how we usually start the conversation about hypertension and contraception. So, regarding this table that you showed us, um, it was published in the, I think it was the Journal of American Medical Association. Right, so, in JAMA. In JAMA, exactly. And uh, so, blood pressure and contraception. So, why is it important to check the blood pressure before starting contraception? Well, it's particularly important because um, we think about that 25% of women of reproductive age have hypertension, and it's particularly important for our black patients where um, more than half these women over age 20 are going to have hypertension. So we want to keep them safe. We want to keep them protected. It's our job to make sure that um, we're reducing their risk for, for stroke and for heart attack and for consequences um, like that. So as they are uh, in reproductive age and they're thinking about their contraceptive options, uh, it's very important for us to choose a contraceptive option that is safe. Um, as we know, people with hypertension have you know, lots of cardiovascular risk factors. And if we're going to add something like a combined oral contraceptive agent um, that's going to contain estrogen products, um, we need to be careful because that can also elevate risk by being uh, pro-inflammatory, pro-thrombotic, um, having adverse effects on lipid profiles. So uh, we just want to make sure that we're choosing a safe option for them for birth control, as well as for options for control control of, of abnormal bleeding, for example, or cycle control. Okay. Yeah. And um, so the number one point in your table, on the table that we're going to discuss today, they talk about the proper uh, technique to, to check the blood pressure. So uh, I'm just going to mention this very quickly, but the patient should be, um, you know, relaxed with the feet flat on the, on the floor and without talking for three to five minutes. And the patient should avoid smoking, caffeine, exercise for 30 minutes before uh, the blood pressure check and use appropriate cough size. I think that's very important for the, for the measurement because sometimes it can be a, a cough that is too large or too small and that can make a difference in the blood pressure check. And also um, the, the blood pressure has, should be confirmed uh, in two or three visits to make the diagnosis. Uh, or it can be also done with the 24-hour ambulatory monitoring. And... Uh, I know Dr. Moreno, our nephrologist in Clinica Sierra Vista, sometimes he, he recommends this, but particularly I haven't used it before, but I know that it's very useful for the diagnosis. Right. I think that's really important because um, I think most people are aware of those proper measurement techniques, but I think um, in the busy clinic day, we have to be very careful. Um, sometimes we're in a rush to room patients. We might be running behind. And you can think about how many times you might be um, just observing your patient being roomed by the MA and perhaps they're chatting or they're taking the history while they're taking the blood pressure to try to save time or um, they've not really um, had a chance to sit and rest for a few minutes before the blood pressure 
measures taken. So just very important to make sure that we are following through with actually using the proper measurement technique um, on a day-to-day basis and also rechecking it uh, later during the visit if it's elevated. And we're having a lot more patients have access to um, home management uh, measurement tools as well. And happily, we're getting some grant funding to allow and promote that. So um, being able to kind of follow up on check on those blood pressures at home uh, will be really helpful too. Tips by Valerie C. That's me, Dr. Savelli with a C. And me, Patrick DeLuna. So which OCP to use? Here's tip number one. In general, higher estrogen and birth control pills, greater than 35 micrograms, means better control but worse estrogen-related side effects, such as nausea or breast tenderness. Lower-dose estrogen birth control, such as that less than 20 micrograms, are better for those having estrogen-related side effects and must be taken at the same time every day. Remember, the lower the dose of estrogen means the higher risk of breakthrough ovulation and breakthrough bleeding. So, Lolo is a great option for this. Dr. Karen Tamala, my ob when asked about her OCP preference for patients, she states, I pretty much always use monophasic pills. They seem in general to provide improved cycle control, and I think most ob would agree. So after we diagnose hypertension, so we have to make sure that we don't have a, a secondary cause of hypertension. So I have here a list of things that can make us um, think about secondary hypertension, okay? If it's a patient that has a resistant hypertension that requires two or, two or three or more um, agents to control the blood pressure, or a person who had good blood pressure before that was well controlled and then it's worsening, that's, that can make us, that's a red flag that the patient might have a secondary cause. And also a patient with a blood pressure that is very high, over 180, over, t- um, over 10, 110, sorry, 180 over 110, so that's stage three hypertension, or a person who is younger than 20 or older than 50 at the time of, no, older than 50 at the time of diagnosis, and or a person who has, um, you know, in the physical exam or the laboratories, they, they make us suspect secondary causes of hypertension. So if that's the case, according to the table that we're talking today, we're talking about, uh, you know, we have to treat those secondary causes. And uh, I think that's really important too, right? For because mm-hmm. for your department in family medicine, um, you all are quite familiar with and skilled at um, measuring and assessing for those things. Um, but I think as an OBGYN physician, um, I'd like to remind both myself as well as my colleagues, we really need to think about the fact that since we're often the only provider that may be seeing that patient that year for their annual exam or for their um, pap smear and birth control pill refill, um, if you see anything that, that raises a red flag or raises that alarm, we need to be um, um, thoughtful about referring that patient over to the family medicine department to have those secondary causes ruled out. And I think that's not always at the at the forefront of what uh, we're thinking uh, in the OBGYN department. So I think that was a really good reminder for me when I looked at the table. Yeah. And so I just want to mention right now, like the most common causes of secondary causes, secondary causes of hypertension. So on this table, they mentioned pheochromocytoma, renal artery stenosis, kidney disease, OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, hyperaldosteronism and thyroid disorders, and Cushing syndrome and coartation of the aorta. So in, in your experience, have you um, faced any of these secondary causes before, like um, uh, when you when you diagnose hypertension? 
myself personally, um, more so when I was practicing in the academic environment, I would see some of those. I've diagnosed a few before. We see quite a lot of kidney disease in our population and thyroid disorders. Um, the others less so. Um, yeah. And you know what? It was interesting to me to, rem to remind myself that thyroid disorders includes hypo and hyperthyroidism. They both can cause hypertension. So it was important for me to remember that. Hmm. Yeah, so... That's um, a good reminder. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So after you, let's say you diagnose the blood pressure, the hypertension, and you diagnose a secondary cause, and you are addressing that. So on the table, the point number two, it says that you are, have to assess a cardiovascular disease risk factors. And, um, and you have to determine if there is any contraindication for uh, combined hormonal contraception. So additional risk factors include, um, you know, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, smoking, obesity, family history of premature cardiovascular disease, and physical inactivity. So, um, and then the other contraindications they mentioned here, smoking, or more than two cardiovascular risk factors, uh, you know, complicated valvular disease, ischemic heart disease, stroke, breast cancer, liver cirrhosis, migraine, among others. So the, this is a, a very short list of the contraindications for um, combi combined hormonal contraception. But uh, is there any, any you think in, in our practice, so any of these contraindications that we are missing frequently that you think is, it should be significant? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think most people are aware on some level um, that smoking, uh, particularly over age 35, is a risk factor. And most people are aware um, uh, about about breast cancer. Uh, but I think something that's often missed is a history of migraine with aura. And it is specific to migraine with aura. So you have to take a little additional history with the patient to, um, to determine whether that's a factor or not. And I think we become a little complacent because obesity and physical inactivity are so um, common um, in reproductive age females that uh, we forget the fact that two or more CVD risk factors is a contraindication to use of CHCs. So, you know, think about how many people that involves if you just consider obesity um, defined as a BMI over 30 plus physical inactivity. Um, that rules it out for a lot of folks. That plus smoking um, really needs to be at the forefront of what your thinking is. So, um, for example, if you're just uh, seeing a patient and they're saying, hey, can you refill my birth control pill prescription? I'm out. Um, it shouldn't just be a reflex to just refill that prescription. You need to think about, um, you know, be very thoughtful and mindful of whether it's safe to do that or maybe something has changed since the last time that they um, had their birth control pill uh, prescribed. So really kind of working through each of those factors in your head and making sure that you're paying attention to it to keep your patient safe is important. Tip number two. For patients who complain of bloating, waking, hirsutism, and acne, think about Yaz and its higher dose sister, Yasmin, which is a compound of drospirinone plus ethanol estradiol. Yaz or Yasmin have a special type of progesterone known as drospirinone. This makes it pretty unique. Now I want to do a little exercise with you. So that's the point number three on our table. So we're going to discuss uh, three scenarios or three different groups of patients. So the first group is a patient that is younger than 35, that is healthy, that is well-controlled, uh, that has a well-controlled hypertension or does not have any hypertension. So, uh, so what um, contraception is safe to use in those patients? Sure, this is the easy category. So this is basically the anything goes. So for the most part, 
patients in this category are going to be candidates for whatever uh, fits their personal preferences and lifestyle needs the best. Um, it, it often comes up in conversation uh, whether someone with hypertension can or cannot receive combined oral contraceptive agents. And in this age group, if they're well controlled, uh, it's a reasonable uh, a reasonable prescription. So this particular article breaks down the recommendations based on the U.S. Medical Eligibility Criteria, or MEC. And um, for people not familiar with that, level one is is sort of safe to always use. Level two is we feel that the benefits outweigh the risks. Level three, we think the risks probably outweigh the benefits. And level four means it's strictly contraindicated. Um, so for this patient group we're talking about, young, healthy, maybe they have hypertension that's well controlled, pretty much all topics, all types of birth control pills and, and other options, progesterone agents, et cetera, are all safe to use, uh, or at least we feel the benefits outweigh the risks. Okay. Is there any, like, for example, is it better to use the, for example, the IUD, um, the Mirena, or, or for example, use the, the progestin-only pills? Is that, would that be better in that, that case? Well, it depends on um, what they're really wanting um, out of the birth control, whether it's strictly contraception, if they're looking more for cycle control, control of heavy bleeding. Uh, so it's really an individualized um, approach. Um, certainly, anytime you can find a method that is safe and acceptable to the patient that doesn't contain estrogen, on, on some level, you're probably minimizing their risks. So um, certainly someone that's um, 34 and has hypertension and maybe is on one agent, um, for that patient, I would rather see them on, for example, a, a progesterone IUD over a combined oral contraceptive agent. So even though they're still a candidate for, for CHCs, um, I agree, perhaps a, an IUD might be a better choice for that patient just to, to minimize their risk. Okay, sounds good. And sometimes we forget about the non-hormonal options, um, you know, the condoms and this, well, I don't know, spermicide is probably not, not so effective, but. Hey, yeah, you'd be surprised. There's a brand new um, a brand new product just FDA approved on the market, a slightly different sort of form of spermicide. So we may see a resurgence of people's interest in that as there's some marketing around that. Oh, great. It's good to hear that. Um, and then um, cervical cap, and you know, it's another uh, option that we sometimes forget. Yeah, at least I, I usually forget about that, you know, the cervical cap, but it can be beneficial for some patients. So, sure, and once in a while we have someone that wants to be fitted for a diaphragm or that's interested in, in a copper or non-hormonal IED as well. Tip number three. Yaz and Yasmin, let's talk about insurance coverage, such as Family Pact and Current Family. 12-month supply may be provided twice in one year, but for a third dispense of a 12-month supply, a TAR is likely required, which means prior authorization. Though, if you do see this med was not covered, it is likely that the patient may have been prescribed a two, like two 12-month supplies of OCPs already. In this case, submit a TAR in this case for coverage. Okay, good. So let's talk about the second group of patients. So this second group of patients are patients that are older than 35 years old, and they have, um, they have controlled hypertension, or at any age with systolic blood pressure between 140 and 160, and diastolic blood pressure between 90 and 100. So in that, in that group of patients, um, give us some options for contraception. 
Sure. In that group of patients, you're really going to want to try to avoid estrogen-containing products. There may be some patients, based on your assessment of their personal history and their needs and the risks of not being on an agent or, for example, the risks of becoming pregnant, uh, there may be patients where you might use a CHC, but in general, you're really going to want to avoid anything that has estrogen. So um, non-hormonal options like the ones we just talked about or progesterone-only options um, are going to be your preferred methods. Um, Depo-Provera is also a good option in this population in general. Uh, when we think about the different progesterone options, uh, birth control pills that contain progesterone-only, uh, progesterone-only IUDs, uh, implants such as Nexplanon versus Depo-Provera, we keep Depo-Provera in a slightly different category because the systemic exposure level to, to total progesterone levels is a little bit higher with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some cases, you might consider that it, it uh, offers a little bit more risk. Um, so in terms of preferred options, we would stick with um, non Depo-Provera progesterone options or non-hormonal options for this uh, patient population. Great. So that, and then we're going to talk about the third group of patients. So these patients are patients of any age with systolic blood pressure above 160 and diastolic blood pressure above 100. So the options for those patients. Well, in this one, the most important thing to remember is just no combined oral contraceptive agents, nothing with estrogen for these patients. And if they're someone who has been on the pill, you know, this is a common scenario we see in the clinic, they may have been on the pill and then um, their blood pressure has become relatively more poorly controlled um, or something has changed. And the most recent visit that they've come in for, their blood pressure is quite high. Um, as we're working through that and as we're working to get their blood pressure control, maybe adding another agent or working on lifestyle issues uh, together, you know, those changes take weeks to months and you want to have them off the birth control pill during that time and you want to convert them over to a non-hormonal option or a progesterone-only option because um, it's important to reduce um, their risk during that time. You don't want them on estrogen, but equally, you don't want them to have an unintended pregnancy, um, which has its own risks. Uh, so it's important to recognize uh, when your patient falls in that category, get them off an estrogen-containing pill, and get them onto another form of reliable birth control so you don't subject them to an unintended pregnancy in the process. Okay, so um, combined hormonal contraception includes the low-dose uh, combined uh, ethinyl strada- stradiol, you know, mm-hmm. so also the combined oral contraceptives, the combined transdermal preparations and combined vaginal ring. So sometimes we always think about the pill, but there is other preparations that are considered also combined hormonal contraception that we might meet. Right. And I and I, I explain that to patients in the same way. Essentially, it's the same medication delivered by pill, by patch, or by vaginal ring, um, the same medication, and therefore essentially the same risks. Um, there's slightly different risks, we believe, based on hepatic um, um, processing uh, for, for the transdermal and the vaginal. But um, in the big picture, the easy way to remember it is to just think of them as all similar. Tip number four. Yaz or Yasmin is special because it is not just a low androgen option, which is what you would look for in a pill for patients in need of acne control. But it is actually an anti-androgen, so it is the best option for acne. It is also the best option to reduce pill-related weight gain, as progesterone element drosperinone also acts as a diuretic. Did you know that drosperinone has anti-androgenergic properties equivalent to 25 milligrams of spironolactone? 
Okay. So, and then the point number four on, on the table, it says that we have to continue to monitor the blood pressure every two to four weeks after initiating um, the contraceptives, the combined hormonal contraception, and a follow-up visits every six months. So, so is that what you recommend, like every six months to see the patient if they want to refill, you know, to make sure that they are doing okay? Or uh, um, Yeah, I, I really think it's best practice, and it's something that I think often gets overlooked, particularly in what people think of in their mind as lower-risk um, population patients. So a woman in her late 20s comes in, and you see her for her annual exam, and among other things, you get her started on a birth control pill. It's smart to have her come back at the three- to six-month interval, check in, see how she's doing, how she's liking it, any side effects, and get a chance to recheck her blood pressure, um, because there is, um, there is a small but real percentage of women that will experience a, a bump up in their blood pressure from um, starting a pill and it's just good practice to do that okay well i think um, that covers a whole table just um you know reminding everybody to check on the the patients on combined hormonal contraception every six months at least and, um, and, and if the blood pressure increases in the absence of other causes it's okay to discontinue chs CHC, sorry, CHC. <laughs> yes, discontinue and replace. I think that's a that's an important message. Oh, okay. Replace with oh, another okay. replace with another form, um, because you know pregnancy um, uh, worsens cardiovascular risk factors in some settings too. So you certainly don't want to have someone abruptly stop their estrogen containing pill and then have an unintended pregnancy because we haven't closed the gap of, of placing them on a different type of uh, reliable birth control. Well, that's great, Dr. Tamela. I think um, this is going to be very helpful for all the primary care providers out there. And I hope everybody enjoyed this. And any final words that you want to say to close this episode? Um, I think we've covered everything we need to cover. Just wanted to um, say thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. I think it's a great idea to, to initiate this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And have a nice day. All right. Take care. Tip number five. Menstrual headaches? Think Merset. Merset is a great option for patients with menstrual headaches because it reduces the stark drop in estrogen that happens from the active pills to the placebo. And it is the drop that is believed to be the trigger for menstrual headaches. By having a smoother estrogen step-down effect and a shorter placebo pill length. However, if you do end up seeing a patient with migraines, especially ones with auras, it is best to avoid combined hormonal contraceptives, especially if they're older than 35. Speaking Medical. Ouch, my hair hurts. Are you serious? Yes. There is a condition where a person can experience pain from stimuli that isn't normally painful. The term is called allodynia. But wait, can that pain also be considered hyperalgesia? This is so confusing. Allodynia and hyperalgesia are both related to hypersensitivity to pain. So let's break them down. Allodynia is the feeling of pain caused by a usually non-painful stimuli, such as brushing your hair. Allodynia results from increased pain receptors. Some people with migraine may have allodynia and will often describe this experience by saying, my hair hurts. Hyperalgesia, on the other hand, is an increased numbers of action potentials 
and spontaneous discharges and response to pain stimuli leading to a lower threshold. This means a patient will experience more pain with a stimulus that was previously less painful. In practice, patients on high dose of opioid may experience hyperalgesia and stroking on their skin can cause pain. The treatment for this condition is to lower the opioid dose. In the midst of all these medical jargons, allodynia and hyperalgesia are referred to as hypersensitivity to pain. However, their pathophysiology is different. Allodynia is related to stimuli that are generally non-painful, which becomes painful upon stimulation, while hyperalgesia is related to stimuli that are generally painful but becomes more significantly painful when stimulated. By this time, if you're still confused, allodynia equals non-painful stimuli, hyperalgesia equals painful stimuli. I hope listening to this part wasn't too painful for you. I know a lot of jokes about retired people. None of them work. <laughs> the difference between a numerator and a denominator is a short line. Only a fraction of people will understand this. <laughs> what are you saying about our audience here? <laughs> a cheese factory exploded in France. Debris is everywhere. <laughs> Finland has closed its borders. No one can cross the finish line. <laughs> Did you hear the rumor about butter? Well, I'm not going to spread it. <laughs> <laughs> I have two dogs named Rolex and Timex. They're my watchdogs. Thank you, guys. Now we conclude our episode number 36, Birth Control and Hypertension. Dr. Tamala explained that whenever you have a patient with uncontrolled hypertension, be alert of the contraindications to hormonal birth control. Dr. Savelli and Patrick gave us some interesting tips on birth control pills, and Zhang explained the difference between allodynia and hyperallergesia. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, contact us by email at rbresidency at clinicaseravista.org or visit our website at riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Karen Tamala, Hector Ariasa, Lisa Montanares, Stephen Saito, Valerie Savelli, Patrick Daluna, Zhang Jiang, did we forget to mention Mohammed Suleiman in a previous episode? Him too. Audio by Siraj Amrutia. See you next week. <laughs>